Tonight I'd like to continue the discussion of sudden awakening and gradual cultivation. So what does sudden awakening mean? It's the recognition and the experience of the mind's open, empty, aware nature, which is always and already present. It's not something we have to get or develop. It's rather something we need to recognize and settle back into. During the day, if you find at different times that you're struggling with awareness, you know, and just there's that sense of tensing or struggling, you might remind yourself with a little mantra, it's already here. It's already here. And because often the mind has this tendency to be looking for instead of settling back. So it's not about wanting, it's not about getting. It's about letting go into the wisdom mind of non-clinging. There are a few just very direct little teachings about this. One is from the great Dzogchen master Kensi Rinpoche. He said, awareness basically means freedom from clinging. If there is clinging, it is non-awareness. That's pretty straightforward. Awareness basically means freedom from clinging. If there's clinging, it is not awareness. So we could really understand our practice in a very fundamental way as the practice of non-clinging. Another Tibetan teacher, Chechen Gelsap, he said, if you don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. And so that's a very nice expression. If there's no clinging in the mind, whatever arises, you know, in the body, in the mind, it's naturally liberated because there's no holding, there's no grasping. Everything in its nature is changing, is arising and disappearing. So we could see non-clinging as the bottom line, the reference point of this practice of recognizing awareness. Now a key element of understanding the mind's empty nature, the empty nature of awareness, is not clinging to or identifying with awareness itself. Because that's often the last holdout of the sense of self. You know, we're not clinging to thoughts, emotions, sensations, sounds, but very often and in very subtle ways, there's this identification, well, I'm the one who's aware of it all. So that's something we need, you know, over time to really look at and explore. We begin to understand that clinging is a doing of the mind. When we're clinging, we're actually doing something. And non-clinging is a non-doing. It's a resting back in the natural ease of mind. And Yoshal Ken, who was one of our teachers and also uh, one of the great Zochen masters, 
he said, Preserve the natural state and rest your weary mind. And it was like that, just that image of resting the weary mind. You know, what do we rest it in? We rest it in non-clinging awareness. So then the question arises, if the awakened state, sudden awakening, is already here, if, as the Thai monk Buddhadasa says, there's nothing to do, nothing to be, nothing to have, then what does it mean to speak of gradual cultivation? And so this becomes an interesting dynamic. Sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. If the awakening is already here, what's the need for gradual cultivation? So Shinul, the Korean Zen master who used this phrase, this framework of teaching, he was very direct about this. When he used the phrase sudden awakening, he was not referring to full enlightenment. He was referring to these moment to this moment or moments of recognition of the nature of awareness. That's the sudden awakening. To the experience and recognition of this quality of mind, this nature of mind, doesn't mean that we're fully enlightened. Got it? (laughs) Okay, so even though we may have recognized to some extent the empty, aware nature of mind, Shanul, I think very accurately, goes on to say, although we have awakened to original nature, Beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. Hindrances are formidable, and habits are deeply ingrained. Is this a surprise? (laughs) Hindrances are formidable, and habits are deeply ingrained. So how could you neglect gradual cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? But then he goes on to add one little very important piece. He said, but although you must cultivate further, you have already awakened suddenly to the fact that deluded thoughts are originally void and the mind nature is originally pure. So even though the hindrances are formidable and habits are deeply ingrained, Janul is reminding us that even though one moment or many moments of awakening is not complete, it still transforms the way we continue to undertake our practice. So that's the power of it. Not that there's no further work to be done, but how we do that work is transformed. So as we practice gradual cultivation, and even as we use all the skillful means and methods that we talk about, we're now proceeding from the understanding that the hindrances, the defilements, whatever difficult energies are arising, we understand even as we're working with them, 
that they themselves are empty and insubstantial. So this is a very different way of relating to the hindrances themselves. We work with them. They're still there. They're going to be there probably for quite a while. But after moments of recognition, moments of sudden awakening, we start to relate to them in a much easier and lighter way. There's one description of the Buddha's enlightenment which has inspired me a lot in my practice. And there's a description that Joseph Campbell writes about in his book, Hero with a Thousand Faces. And he describes how the Buddha is the Bodhisattva, just before his enlightenment, is sitting under the Bodhi tree in Bodh Gaya, India. And he has made the firm resolve not to get up from his seat until he has attained full realization. So just for a moment, consider that level of resolve. I mean, imagine coming into the hall. I will not get up from my seat. So there's some power there. And as the night progressed, as Campbell describes it, different forces of Mara, or the embodiment of ignorance, appeared in his mind. And so there were terrifying visions, you know, of violence and aggression. And there were very enticing and alluring visions of heavenly pleasures. And then one sentence that Campbell uses, he just, to me, this one sentence captures the essence of the practice and has become a kind of reference point for my own practice. And it's the expression, for those of us still on the path, of what sudden awakening gradual cultivation might mean. So in the face of all these frightening and terrifying and enticing and alluring visions, it said, and the mind of the great being was not moved. You know, I just love that possibility in the face of whatever arises, and the mind of the great being, the bodhisattva, was not moved. So this really can be the pole star of our practice. In whatever posture we are, in whatever activity we're engaged in, does our mind move? Are we pulled out of awareness? What has the power to move the mind? How is the mind seduced by various arising appearances? I've mentioned to some of you in the groups, more and more I see the whole practice as simply being in the flow of experience and noticing, seduced, not seduced, seduced, not seduced, although it's not usually (laughs) one-to-one, unfortunately. Seduce, 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 seduce. (laughs) Not seduced. (laughs) So the Buddha gives us some help here in highlighting some particular seductive energies. And this happens on, on many different levels. As we all know, we can easily get lost in strong emotions. You know, when they come, easy to get seduced by them. We can get lost just in fleeting thoughts. 
You know, we talk about the wandering mind, but actually the mind is not wandering anyplace. The mind's not going anyplace. It's just that thoughts are there and we're not aware of them. That's what we call the wandering mind. You know, so there's not the effort to drag the mind back. It's simply to recognize what it is that's happening. So thoughts can be seductive. As I mentioned, identification with consciousness itself is a great seduction. Taking the knowing to be self, to be I. So in our practice, in this practice of gradual cultivation, it's essential that we begin to recognize these particular energies, which uh, sometimes are called the hindrances, It's essential that we begin to recognize them, see how they arise in the mind, begin to investigate the nature of each one, and then particularly to see what is its allure. Now, why are we so enticed by them? So that's interesting to look at. When we do this, when we approach being with the hindrances or the difficult energies in this way, we begin to see them not so much as a personal problem. You know, it's not, oh, I'm so burdened with the hindrances. We begin to see them not even so much as a difficulty on the path, but as the very place Exactly when these are arising, it's the very place for us to investigate and to see for ourselves the dynamic interplay between ignorance and awareness. Seduced, not seduced. Suffering and freedom. So the arising of these states from that perspective of sudden awakening, when we understand their empty, insubstantial nature, even as they continue to arise, it's like we approach them with interest because in their very arising, we can liberate the mind. It's a very different way of working. In the Dzogchen tradition, there's a saying, the greater the defilement, the greater the awareness. So that's an interesting notion. What it means is that as we practice this mindful awareness in the face of strong emotions, strong seductive mind states, maybe there's strong fear or loneliness or whatever joy, happiness, anything that seduces us in the face of these strong emotions, as we practice awareness, at that very time, it actually makes the awareness stronger and more stable. So the stronger the energy, the stronger the awareness when we practice in the right way. So the challenge for all of us is can we practice in the face of these habitual tendencies, deeply ingrained habitual tendencies, 
so that like the great being, our minds are not moved. So we really practice that. So there are a few steps in this process. The first and obvious one is recognition. We need to practice recognizing the telltale signs of the different hindrances. And the reason it's particularly important, and this has to do with their allure, is that when they arise, they often come masquerading as something else. The hindrances arise, and they are often masquerading as something skillful, something wholesome, something good, something to cultivate. So they're really tricky. We need to call them on it. We get fooled by their disguise. So tonight I want to speak of two of the hindrances, uh, but they can serve as a template for also understanding the rest. I'll begin with the hindrance or the mind state of doubt. Now the word doubt can refer to two quite different states. There's a wholesome doubt and an unwholesome doubt. The wholesome doubt has to do just with that spirit of inquiry, you know, the spirit of investigation. It's the opposite of dogmatic belief. It's not just sitting and believing everything. It's that interest to discover for ourselves. So we could call that, and in Zen sometimes it's called the great doubt. You know, what is this? What is the nature of this? So it's that inquiry and looking. The unhelpful, the unwholesome aspect of doubt, we might call skeptical doubt. And this is the mind's state of uncertainty, of indecision. You know, it's like being at a crossroads and not knowing which way to go, and the mind simply going back and forth between the different alternatives and not going anywhere. So it's just we're stuck. Should I go this way? Should I go this way? Back and forth, back and forth, and not moving forward at all. Skeptical doubt, when it's unnoticed, is the most powerful of all the hindrances. Why? Because unnoticed, it brings our practice to a standstill. All the other hindrances, the desire and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness, we can, we can work with them and struggle with them and you know, engage with them. But when skeptical doubt is there and unnoticed, we're just stopped. So that's why I want to emphasize it tonight. So that we get a very clear understanding of how it arises, what its disguise is, so that we begin to really see and recognize it clearly. The power of this skeptical doubt is that when it's strong, it doesn't even give us the chance to take a wrong turn, you know, and to learn from our mistakes. We're just frozen in indecision. We're always checking ourselves, wondering, you know, trying to decide. Some years ago, 
Uh, there was a novel, The Life of Pi, by Jan Martel, a wonderful book. And there was one line in that book which jumped out at me, because it's all about this mind state. He said, he wrote, to choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. (laughs) That's it. So we have to see how that skeptical doubt is functioning in us. Now, in meditation practice, doubt takes some very particular forms, which I'm sure at different times in your practice you've experienced. And as we pay attention, we begin to recognize some of these patterns. It could be doubting thoughts about the practice itself. You know, what does sitting here day after day, just noticing sights and sounds and thoughts and feelings and sensations, What does it have to do with anything? What does it have to do with the suffering in the world? How is it helping anything? Has that thought ever occurred to you? (laughs) It's the doubting mind. Or we might start comparing practices. I like the old instructions better. They were so just precise and step by step. Or, oh, this is so much better. Plain old mindfulness on the breath, it was so boring, you know, and so begin to have doubt about the efficacy of a very powerful practice in itself. Or maybe the thought comes, maybe I should be due Tibetan chanting, you know, or Sufi dancing. (laughs) They seem to be having more fun. So all of these kinds of thoughts we need to recognize as being, this is just the doubting mind. Doubt about the teachers. You know, many of you have studied with many different teachers, with many different perspectives. And I've seen in myself, in my practice, very often the thought, well, who's right? No, they're, they're, they really know. They don't know. And we just kind of go back and forth and confuse ourselves This comparing mind just leads to greater doubt and confusion. And perhaps the most debilitating kind of doubt is self-doubt. And that can take the form of doubting our ability to practice. Am I doing this right? I can't do it. It's too hard. I don't understand it. You know, we get caught in that loop. When the pattern of self-doubt is strong, not only is it a hindrance in the practice, it becomes a tremendously debilitating force in our lives because we're always undermining ourselves. We're always checking ourselves because of that self-doubt. And we're always holding back. At one teaching with the Dalai Lama, uh, someone asked him, I do not feel worthwhile as a person. How can I work on this as a beginning meditation student? You know, so this is a powerful expression of self-doubt. I don't feel worthwhile as a person. What can I do? And the Dalai Lama was so 
He said, you should not be discouraged. Your feeling, I am of no value, is wrong, absolutely wrong. You are deceiving yourself. <laughs> I mean, I love that. You know, he's just calling it. He's, these thoughts may come, these thoughts of self-doubt, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy, whatever form it takes, and we believe it, it's wrong. We are deceiving ourselves because we're not seeing doubt for what it is. Now, it's an interesting phra- there's an interesting phrase in English when we say someone is plagued by doubt, just as a, as a kind of idiom. It is like a plague because it weakens us. You know, instead of making the experiment, whether it's in meditation or anything else in our lives, instead of just be willing to go into an experience, make the experiment, see what it's like for ourselves, and then assess, has this been helpful, has it not been helpful? Mind simply gets lost in these endless speculation and doesn't do anything. And then, of course, doubt becomes self-fulfilling. Because staying lost in the doubting mind really is useless. We don't go anyplace. It doesn't allow for us to investigate for ourselves. You know, this endless conjecture, it's exhausting. And it's also painful. In the Buddhist texts, the doubting mind is likened to a thorn that keeps jabbing. And I'm just pay attention to the next time the doubting mind comes. It is just like that. It just keeps jabbing, jabbing, jabbing. And we get more and more irritated and discouraged and dissatisfied. Okay, so the Buddha summed this up when he said about doubt and all the other hindrances. He said, when we attend to them carelessly, they cause lack of vision, lack of knowledge, are detrimental to wisdom, tending to vexation, leading away from awareness. Note that he didn't say when they arise. He said when we attend to them carelessly. So that's a key message for us. So given all this, given that it's a thorny mind and it makes us irritable, tending to vexation, detrimental to wisdom, why would we ever be caught up in them? I mean, that's kind of an interesting notion, something that's so unbeneficial, what is its allure? Why do we get caught up? Why do we get identified with these states? So if we can recognize its arising and have an attitude of inquiry and investigation, then the second step in the process is beginning to understand its allure. We begin to see 
that the great seduction of the doubting mind happens in two ways. The first way is that it comes masquerading as wisdom. Doubts arising in the mind, but we're taking it to be wisdom. Why? Because we hear this very wise-sounding voice in our minds, and it sounds so reasonable and so valid. What's the point of doing this? Uh, There's no point. Maybe some other time, you know, I was really working hard before I came, and I just, be better just to take a vacation. Other practices are so much better. And it's just, yeah. You know, it's coming across as being the voice of wisdom. So we need to really see that, not be seduced by it, see it for what it is. You know, or in daily life situations, when we might get caught between two alternatives, there are kind of two choices, and we're just going back and forth and we don't know what to do. Caught up in endless thought loops about it and then believing those thoughts and not seeing them as simply being the doubting mind. We get seduced. So the first is whenever you think your mind is sounding particularly wise, (laughs) just take a second look. You know, that itself might be an indication. Okay, the second allure of doubt is interesting. And that is, we're pulled into it because we often find it difficult to accept that in different situations, we might not yet know what to do. We don't like the feeling of not knowing. It's an uncomfortable feeling. So rather than rest in the truth of the experience that we don't yet know what to do, because it's uncomfortable, so then we start trying to figure it out with our thoughts, through the process of thought. But when there's no clarity of understanding, when that hasn't happened yet, trying to figure it out through thought just leads to these endless thought loops just leads to the perplexity of the doubting mind. And I've had this experience, you know, at different times when I was faced with a choice, didn't know what to do, and felt like I was driving myself a little crazy, trying to decide, until I finally saw, oh, it's okay not to know. So that can be a helpful little mantra. It's okay not to know. And then we just rest in the experience until we know. If we ever do. And maybe we will, maybe we won't. But if we're driven to just this endless thinking about it when we don't yet understand, we just get caught in the doubting mind and it reinforces the sense of perplexity, confusion, a thorny mind. So it's okay not to know. 
If we can be aware of doubt as just another passing thought, if we can really see it, if we can recognize it, and not be fooled by its disguise, and we don't give it any power, we don't buy it, we just see it for what it is. This is this is a passing thought in the mind, a passing appearance. Then there is a sudden awakening to its empty, insubstantial nature. In recognizing doubt as doubt, we are already aware. We have already awakened to the truth of doubt and to the nature of awareness. In recognizing doubt as doubt, and the mind of the great being was not moved. Doubt arose, no problem, because it's seen for what it is. Okay, that's doubt. Doubt is doubt, simple. Another mind state that often powerfully conditions our lives and certainly our meditation practice is the mind state of aversion. You know, and we can experience aversion in so many different ways. We experience it as anger, as hatred, as fear, as irritation, as annoyance, as ill will, as the judging mind. You know, aversion takes many forms. And all of these forms of aversion are simply the conditioned response of the mind conditioned reactions of the mind to what we find unpleasant. Very rarely do we have aversion to the pleasant. We have aversion to the unpleasant. We don't like it. So as with doubt, we can learn to recognize, we need to learn to recognize aversion when it arises, to investigate its nature. What does it feel like? How is it manifesting? And then to really see and look at the source of its hold on the mind. Now, how does it seduce us? And with aversion, it's like with doubt, it's interesting. It's so unpleasant. Why should it seduce us? You know, so how how is that happening? So first, in terms of recognizing it, aversion arises in some pretty predictable ways. You know, it's, this is not some subtle phenomenon. Very easy to see in relationship to physical pain. You know, you're sitting, whether it's in meditation or just in life, pain arises. What's the immediate response, I think? You know, we've talked about it a little bit. The immediate response is, we don't like it. You know, and we can feel a kind of contraction, the energetic contraction in the face of it. Frustration, impatience, self-pity, you know, all of these reactions to avoid the unpleasantness. But this is also a help to us because when we feel ourselves contracting, that's like a feedback. When we feel ourselves contracting, it's a pretty good chance that something's going on that's unpleasant. You know, and so look to see, is there some pain? Is there some discomfort? It's a way of recognizing it. 
Aversion also arises in the mind when we think of some painful or unpleasant past situation. Now, has that come up at all? You know, you're sitting and you just think of some interaction you had with somebody, some situation at work, something that was painful and unpleasant. And you're just sitting in the hall here. They're not here. So you're just sitting here, nice, peaceful environment, but the thoughts come. And as soon as we think or see an image of the person or the situation, very easy for it to trigger anger you know, or annoyance or what whatever the feeling may be. So that's interesting. What are we really getting angry at? We're getting angry at a thought. doesn't really make sense, but that's what's going on. Even more ridiculous is we can think about things that haven't even happened yet. <laughs> we imagine something that's going to happen that we won't like. You know, some interaction with somebody, some situation. And so we start fantasizing what's going to happen, and then we get upset, we get angry, we get fearful. Welcome to the mind. We can get impatient or frustrated with unpleasant situations on retreat, or, you know, just with difficulties in practice. You know, we're struggling, there are difficulties, and we start getting angry or frustrated or discouraged. And then often we start projecting that discouragement or annoyance or irritation onto other people. You know, it's really just our own inner state, but we project it on our fellow yogis. And there's a phenomenon called the Vipassana Vendetta. (laughs) You know, and there's one person here who just bugs you. You know, you don't like the way they walk, you don't like the way they eat, you don't like the way they sit. It really has nothing to do with the other person. (laughs) It's just the mind. You know, buying into that conditioning. Aversion arises, it arises from so many different ways, as you can see. Aversion arises when we personalize impersonal situations. Very interesting to be at an airport, at a gate, where the flight has just been canceled. And just to watch, just to, just to wa- first to watch one's own mind, <laughs> and then to watch everybody else's mind. We take it so personal. How could they do this to me? You know, I need to be where I'm going. And of course, it has nothing to do with us. But it doesn't stop the mind from getting irritated. And sometimes aversion arises or is fed by associated emotions that we're not seeing. So there may be other things going on that are feeding the anger or feeding the aversion like an underground spring. And unless we notice those other emotions or mind states, it's almost impossible to really let go of the anger. So I'll just give you an example. Quite a few years ago, I was teaching a retreat for lawyers and law students. It was pretty interesting. And in one of the discussion groups, one of the law students, 
he may have been in his second or third year, was just talking about the nature, you know, of that profession, the adversarial nature of it. So it's, you know, it's pretty charged and can get pretty tense. And he made a comment which was so instructive. He said, I need to get angry so I won't feel the fear. You know, and it just, it resonated so well and clearly of how very often in an effort not to feel something else, we get angry, we deflect it into anger because he didn't realize, he was associated, oh, fear is weakness. If I allow the fear to be there, I won't be able to do my job well. Not yet understanding that it's much easier to simply be accepting of the fear and let it wash through and to be resisting the fear and have it projected out in anger. You know, so we really need to see our own minds and understand what are the driving forces behind our emotions and behind our actions. So again, like doubt, given all of these different forms of aversion and the ways they arise and how unpleasant it is, what is the great seduction? Why do we get caught in aversion, in anger, again and again and again? The great seduction of anger is that very sweet feeling of being right. I should be angry. I should be irritated. I should be annoyed. Look at what's happening. Look at what that person is doing. Of course I should be angry. The Buddha described it this way. Anger with its poisoned source and honeyed tip. It's just like that. Because when we see the source, all the forms of aversion within the Buddha psychology are really rooted in the mental factor of hatred. A very unwholesome burning state. So it's a poison source but it has this honeyed tip because this feeling of self-righteousness is so sweet, you know, and we feel it as empowering. So that's its seduction. And it would be interesting just to notice when we're caught. And, and for each of you, in the different times when different forms of aversion arise, Go through these steps. First is the recognition, then it's the investigation, you know, of what how it actually feels. But then look to see what what is the allure for you in that moment. Now, so it's not just a question of hearing this and believing it or disbelieving it. It's all an invitation for you to look for yourself and to see in your experience how it's happening. So there are very many different skillful means of working with aversion in the mind. Sometimes the moment of recognition is enough. You know, if we are really in the flow of awareness, we're just aware of what's arising, and a thought or an image appears and it conditions the feeling of anger and we're right there, sometimes that's all that's needed. You know, and just 
in the non-clinging to it, in the moment of awareness of it, itself liberates. That's the power, that's the potential power of awareness. We really awaken to the empty conditioned nature of the anger, of the annoyance, of the irritation. And we're not seduced by it. And the mind of the great being was not moved, sitting there. Whatever images arose, whatever arose, the mind of the great being was not moved. And we imitate that. You know, can we practice that? Begin to understand what the Buddha said so often in his teachings. He said, all phenomena should be seen with perfect wisdom. This is not I, this is not mine, this is not myself. That's the wisdom of the nature of mind, the nature of awareness. Everything is seen with perfect wisdom as it is. Often, though, we do get caught. You know, that the stability of the awareness is not steady enough. And we may have moments of recognition of it, but then we're seduced, we're caught, we're identified. We might even recognize the aversion and the fear is there. But we keep getting lost in the painful story that it's telling us, in the powerful story. So I just want this is a little sidebar. With emotions like anger, or really any strong emotion, sometimes the emotion is telling us something important. Right? So it's not simply a question of dismissing it. I mean, if we're feeling anger, maybe there's anger at some great injustice. Or maybe it's arising as a way of setting some very important boundaries in our lives. So the arising of the emotion might actually be conveying some important information to us. The challenge is, can we understand the message of the emotion without being overwhelmed, without drowning in it, without simply venting or acting it out? Right? So it's to learn, it's to have intelligence about what's arising. As has been mentioned, and here in particular, it's very helpful to check the attitude in the mind about the aversion, or about the doubt, or whatever the hindrance may be. Asking that question, what's the attitude in my mind about this, is really important. Because we might recognize it, we might investigate it, we might even see its allure, but we may also be holding it in a way that is actually feeding it. So we need to do this last step. What's the attitude in my mind about this? So beside the honeyed tip of self-righteousness, which may be the attitude, maybe we would see that we actually have aversion towards the aversion or self-judgment about the fact that it's arising. And if we don't see those attitudes, they keep feeding the aversion itself. So this step is really important. What's the attitude in my mind about this? 
It's important to understand, and this is an understanding that comes out of the sudden awakening, into the nature of awareness, the empty, open, aware nature, that all these hindrances and difficult energies are not intrinsic to the mind. They're visitors. They're just arising out of conditions. The problem is they've come as visitors for so long. We think they live here. But they don't. We forget their impermanent, insubstantial nature. There's a story about Milarepa, you know, the great Tibetan yogi. He was this was before his enlightenment, uh final enlightenment. And he was in off in his cave practicing, and it's said that a lot of demons came to torment him in the cave. And he was just struggling with these demons. And you you know, you can understand the demons as projections of his mind. And the more he fought them, the stronger they became. The more he struggled with them, they became bigger and stronger and more powerful. Familiar? He tried everything. But then he checked his attitude. (laughs) And he saw that he was struggling with them, had aversion toward them, wanted to get rid of them, and he transformed that into compassion. He looked upon with them, looked upon them with compassion, and it said that he visualized his body as nectar and started feeding the demons. And as soon as he started feeding them, they all disappeared. So this is a nice story. What does feeding the demons mean for us? How can we feed? the demons, the hindrances, the difficult energies, the powerful forces in the mind. Whatever the particular hindrance or difficult energy might be, difficult emotion, and it might be unworthiness or fear or anger or hatred or doubt or restlessness or desire, whatever it may be, it means checking the attitude in the mind about it and opening to it with compassion. And opening with, to it with compassion means being inclusive, not trying to keep something out, but letting everything in and seeing it with perfect wisdom. There's one Tibetan teaching which expresses it this way. It says, the defining characteristic of mind is to be primordially empty like space. The realization of the nature of mind includes all phenomena without exception. That's a powerful statement. The realization of the nature of mind, the nature of awareness, includes all phenomena without exception. So when we're struggling in our practice, when we're struggling in our lives, it signifies only one thing. Struggle is a great feedback because it signifies non-acceptance of something. Because if we were accepting, we wouldn't be struggling. You know, so whenever we're in that sense, 
of striving, of struggle, of tension, whatever it may be, take that as a feedback, not as a problem. That's telling us something. That's saying something is going on in the body, in the mind, in the emotions, in the thoughts, in our external experience. Something is going on that we are not open to, that we're trying to exclude. And that's why we're struggling. So one of my very favorite expressions of this truth is a poem by Billy Collins. And the title of the poem is Another Reason I Don't Keep a Gun in the House. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. He is barking the same high rhythmic bark that he barks every time they leave the house. They must switch him on on their way out. (laughs) The neighbor's dog will not stop barking. I close all the windows in the house and put on a Beethoven symphony full blast. But I can still hear him muffled under the music, barking, barking, barking. And now... I can see him sitting in the orchestra, his head raised confidently as if Beethoven had included a part for barking dog. (laughs) When the record finally ends, he is still barking, sitting there in the oboe section, barking, (laughs) his eyes fixed on the conductor, who is entreating him with his baton, while the other musicians listen in respectful silence to the famous barking dog solo. that endless coda that first established Beethoven as an innovative genius. (laughs) It says it all. When we're not mindful, when we're not aware, all of the hindrances, all of the difficult energies, all of the barking dogs obscure the natural wisdom. And when we are mindful of them, when we include them, the barking dog solo, right there in the oboe section, when we include them, when we open to them, allowing them to appear and change and disappear in the open, empty space of awareness, then the hindrances themselves become a vital part of our practice and of our awakening. This is how we can hold them in a way that they really serve our practice, serve our awakening. Marcel Proust wrote, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. We're learning to see with wisdom, and that's our practice. Let's sit for a couple of minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.